Hello everyone, Dan Sims here from Revel Global and welcome back to the Mold Cheese Collective podcast. We're all about getting to know the story behind the cheeses we love by speaking directly to the people who make it. Today, we catch up with Nicole Gilliver from Grandview Cheese in Birches Bay in Tasmania. And for those not familiar with the area, they're just a little over an hour south of Hobart. In this podcast, we get a little personal. We discuss why she made the jump from what was a seemingly perfect life in the wine game in Brisbane to moving to Tasmania and, in her words, working harder and longer than she's ever done before. Why? What was it about Tasmania that not only drew her there, but kept her there? We're big fans of Nicole, and I can tell you she was one of the first people I called when we were planning the inaugural Mold Cheese Festival. As I knew, with her straight-talking, no-bullshit way, she'd tell me if I was mad or not. And when I say straight-talking, I mean in the delightfully frank, honest, with love kind of way. Suffer fools, she does not. So as I expected, when we caught up to record this, I knew she'd be exactly the same for you, which means you get to hear honest, upfront insights into what goes into making great Australian cheese and her opinion on it. And not just from a technical standpoint, but a personal one as well. The passion Nicole has for not just what she does, but the cheese community as a whole is inspiring. So let's get into it. Nicole, welcome to the Malt Cheese Collective Podcast. If we could start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and Grandview Cheeses. Okay, so Grandview is a family-owned operation, been about since 2002. We are a farmhouse sheep dairy located 40 minutes south of magnificent capital city of Hobart, which I assure you today is absolutely spectacular. We are a family of three. My brother, my mother and myself, and we farm sheep, milk and make cheese. And from the wastages, from the cheeses, we turn it into boozers um, and other funky things. So that, in essence, is who we are. That's amazing. So what? So why cheese? What got you into cheese in the first place? My personal journey was a little bit divergent to the rest of the family in so much as I was arguably gainfully employed in the wine industry in a sales capacity, and I thought that was my lot in life until a bit of a light bulb moment in my life in 2004 when I came down here and worked harder than I ever thought I knew how to and went home and decided that that was where it was at, threw in the towel in my well-paid, lovely job, selling amazing booze in Queensland and arrived in the land of cheese in Tasmania in December 2005. So mum was the um, conceiver of the idea behind the cheese side of the business and it essentially was a concept aimed at a rising tide of agritourism and common family interest in good booze and good cheese and facilitating that. And thus we see ourselves in 2020 doing still cheese different kind of booze and um, other extraneous bits and pieces related to cheese and booze. So when you say that you worked harder than you've ever worked before, but there was something that drew you to it, what, what is it? Is it? Is it the place? Is it the work? Is it the, the people, the product? What was it that really got you? Oh, look, I think when that little epiphany happened, I think what it triggered in me was a realisation that there's a lot more to life than materialism. I was... I was 29 and and all about the aesthetic and everything that that encompassed. 
drinking the right right wine in the right places with the right people, wearing the right clothes, all of that kind of thing that you do when you prioritise certain things in your life that eventually um, you realise aren't necessarily that important. It was a massive part of my identity and I think at 29 when I came down here and essentially was forced to schlep bales of hay non-stop from literally dawn to dusk in summertime in Tasmania and the days, dawn and dusk, I mean dawn starts at mm, 5am and dusk, sun goes down here uh, at about 10pm. That is late. Around the summer solstice. So uh, I kind of walked away from it thinking, is this real work? My nails are split. I am, you know, rooted. I've smashed six beers and they've never tasted so good. Hungrier than the hungriest of hungries. And I still want more. And I feel fulfilled in every aspect of, you know, what feels right to be fulfilled, which is not a materialistic thing. So it was a a new sensation for me. (laughs) And ultimately, really life-changing. I, I find that really um, inspiring. It's a not too dissimilar story I hear from a, from a lot of producers and primary producers is that, yes, the work is hard, but there is something so inherently rewarding. So fast forward to today, how many cheeses do you make at Grandview? Um, well, it depends on the season. So it's been a long sort of 18 years of figuring out what we're good at and what we're not good at. Um, we're still figuring out what we're good at and what we're not good at and that to some extent dictates what we make and what we don't make. But ultimately it's about season and the milk that we've got in the vat. So one of the great things about being small and not having um, a huge requirement to produce certain SKUs like some others, we might schedule a make for, let's say, our Manchego-style cheese and we get the milk. That milk's too good to be a simple manchego, what we're actually going to do is we're going to turn it into blue cheese because it's displaying all the right qualities for blue cheese and shift the primavera or the manchego make to another day. Um, Which is not to say that, what I'm not saying is that milk quality varies um, that greatly. It certainly does, but it varies. It varies in accordance with seasons, rainfall, with all sorts of things, but ultimately we let the milk determine what we're making. We do have a preconceived plan of what we should think that we should make, but if the milk says, hey, I'm blue cheese, I'm blue, make me blue, that's what we're going to do. I love that. So um, my next question is what do you think goes into making great cheese? But I think you've already just answered that and it all comes back down to the milk. So what is it about the season you think that makes such an inherent difference to the cheese that's finally produced? You know, recently in Tasmania, obviously we didn't go through bushfires, thank goodness, this particular summer. However, the summer before that, we absolutely did. Um, We had a really long, hot, dry summer And ultimately what that did to us was it threw our entire production for the whole season. So as far as a negative seasonal impact goes, things like fires, like global warming, like unseasonally hot conditions or wet conditions or whatever can really impact on 
the quality of the milk and therefore the cheeses that you make and therefore the quality of the cheeses that you make. You can have all the tricks up your sleeve in microbiology land to try and manipulate um, your outcome. Um, but ultimately, what milk does in referencing seasonality is it gives you a snapshot in a fat protein microbiological context of um, how the ruminant was feeling about the temperature and the conditions on the day at the time because unlike us they're actually incredibly sensitive to changes in environment and their entire um, metabolic system is programmed to alter milk in accordance with how their body perceives this, you know, the season is going. And do you see that environmental impact that we have here? Is that the same overseas? There are lots of people out there in Cheeseland who want to say, well, you know, in France, they only make goat milk from spring or beautiful goat cheeses from spring milk. True, most of the time. You can't control the weather. So they have to manipulate something and seasons have an impact, but... Beyond that, with the fluctuations in seasonality within seasons that we see, it's, it's all a batch-by-batch batch proposition. You can't paint a broad brush anymore. You can't say, oh, the best cheeses, best goat cheeses in the world are spring milk. Yeah, sure, once upon a time, before it got hot, but, you know, it's, it's 20 degrees today in latitude 43 degrees Southland in Tasmania. And ordinarily, it would be pouring with rain and freezing cold. So I don't know anymore about seasonality. I really like the fact that there's a uniqueness to an agricultural product because I think that's the, the message we probably need to get out there is that just as you have vintage variation in wine, there is variation within cheese. And I think that's the part of the exciting thing that I really love is that uniqueness. Do you have a favourite cheese that you make? Can I just say, just a quick insight into me and what I do. I have been on the tools historically. Today, back on the tools for the first time in a long time, I get asked this question a lot, like what's your favourite cheese or what's your favourite cheese at the moment or what gets you out of bed as a cheese maker. We had some friends in the factory today who came in and socially distanced and they gave me an avenue to be forced to explain the amazing sensory perception and interpretation of milk and the way that we actually use that to inform ourselves as to how we should approach our cheese making on a batch by batch basis. So that process of actually looking at the milk in the vat, seeing what it's doing, interpreting what it's telling me, having an emotional reaction, then an intellectual reaction, applying science to create something that at the end is a reflection of what I was doing, thinking, feeling about that vat of milk um, at the time and then coming back to it, looking at the make sheet and going, oh, it tastes really good or I could have done this better or whatever. Every single cheese we make enthuses me is what I'm getting at. That's why as cheesemakers, when we get asked that question, almost invariably it's like, how do you pick your favourite child? Well, it's a really easy question to answer if you 
don't have children. I don't have two. I don't have a favorite child. Um, and I don't have a favorite cheese. They all present, like children, they all present their own challenges at, at different periods in time because they have a life of their own. So any particular, I could make a cheese, the same cheese three days apart. And when I look at them, once they've matured, once I go to pack to sell, go, oh, that one's crap. That one's really good. As a wine person, I get asked a lot, what's your favourite wine? And I've realised I've just asked the same annoying question to a cheesemaker. And for me, it's a much about the occasion and who I'm with and what I'm feeling that actually has more resonance and more connection to that product. And I apologise for asking such a uh, pedestrian question, but I love that answer because it gives a real meaning to what it is you do and that in that artisan philosophy and approach to cheese making, which I've always admired from all of the producers who uh, have been involved with in the Mole Collective, is that uniqueness. And I think that's the really special one. But I am going to ask you about one cheese in particular. Tell us about the gin herbalist and what brought that about? Well, Mole did. <laughs> <laughs> you called me up or you sent me an email or something, I don't know, and said, we're doing this thing. Are you on board? Are you not? I said, of course we are. Don't want to swear, but I probably did swear because I swear a lot. Yeah, of course we're on board. You know, one of my biggest frustrations is that we don't get to tell these stories. And so the average consumer assumes that when our products sit side by side with King Island something or whatever, we get compared to them. And it's like, great, great. That shit's 60 bucks a kilo. Excellent. Ours is, I don't know, $100 a kilo. But someone pushed a button to produce that for you, whereas we rolled out of bed at 5 o'clock in the morning, milked an animal, chucked that milk in the vat, inoculated it, waited for ferment, put our hands in it. You know, it's different. Um, so to actually be asked the question, are you going to be involved with mole? Of course I am. This, this answers my or speaks directly to one of my issues, and that is I can complain about being compared to big factories all I like. But if I'm not prepared to take the opportunity to get off the island and talk to people about our points of difference, our differences, then I'm an idiot. And so part of your request initially was to make the inaugural mould special, you know, by making an inspired cheese or... So to extrapolate on that, the essence of our values, of, of what we value within what we do, is minimising waste, taking waste and looking at it as not something to put in the bin, but potentially something else, a life force that if you feed it and nurture it, it has the ability to add value. As a society, we've become so complacent and so wasteful. So what... Waste products are we talking here? We take our way, our biggest waste product, fermented distillate to create gin and vodka. Um, it's pretty good. It's actually pretty revolutionary. Well, it has won multiple awards, including world's best. But gin creates botanical waste. Botanical waste has fucking flavour, man. So we essentially pump our waste downstairs to the man cave. The men folk distill it and do all that kind of stuff. And then they give us our, their waste and that goes on the outside of the gin cheese. So onboarded for mould, came up with a gin herbalist. 
it's it's you know it's the special mold inaugural mold cheese what are the herbs or the uh, the botanicals that are used to create the gin and what kind of characteristics do you see that giving that cheese that makes it so unique our gin botanical profile aside from the obvious which is juniper are all australian natives so <clears throat> because we go to extraordinary lengths to vapor infuse each individual botanical into um, our gin, we actually have separated waste materials. So you don't get juniper and anise myrtle and roasted water seed and, and, and all in one batch. So because I separated out, what it enabled us to do was actually bring the botanicals upstairs, all of which except juniper are Australian natives, and play with the blend. So the blend that ended up going on the outside was predominantly lemon myrtle, anise myrtle and roasted wattle seed with a little bit of juniper in there. So let's just say I'm going to a dinner party and I'll be taking the gin herbalist to share. One, how should I describe it to them? And then two, what do you recommend I serve it with slash drink with it? Well, it's a, it's a semi-hard lactic style of cheese that is essentially the best possible vehicle to explain the essence of who we are and why we roll out of bed in the morning. So it's completely indulgent and it was facilitated by this whole mould collective idea. But if you want to know how to eat it and drink it, then my suggestion would be stick it on a high quality cracker of some sort, not bread, and drink it with a sippable, neat spirit of some sort. That's that's my idea of a good time with gin herbalist. It's probably one of the few cheeses that actually goes really nicely with gin. Funnily enough, gin herbalist goes well with gin. I love that. Obviously, our, our festival is called Mould. How would you describe the importance of mould in cheese making? Crucial. It has a multi-stranded importance. So obviously, if you're making a white moulded style or a blue moulded style, you don't have a cheese without, you know, introducing mould. There are ambient moulds in this lurid yellow room that form an integral part of what you might want to call, for lack of a better expression, our terroir. There are also yeasts as well, but, you know, for the purpose of the conversation, you've asked me about mould, and the fact of the matter is that there's not a goddamn cheese in the world that is made by human hands that doesn't have mould as, you know, minimal or maximal impact. There's not a naturally rounded cheese that exists without some kind of mould on the outside because effectively mould and or yeast or varying bacterium actually stick naturally to the outside of these cheeses and they form a protective barrier. Mould, if you like, on the outside of a cheese is a major part, it's the only part actually, of a cheese protecting itself from other microbial incursions that could be detrimental so if you like it's like us cutting ourselves you know the molds want to stick from the atmosphere if you're not introducing them to the outside of a cheese to protect it so in that context it's a protective mechanism if you want to look at how integral that is in the world of artisan cheese making well it's imperative it just doesn't happen without it. Um, which is why it's so frustrating when you get people saying, oh, I don't like mould. It's like, well, even 
the rectangle that you bought in a cryovac packet from Woolworths or Coles the other day had or has mould. They just cut it off so you can't see it, mate. So what you're saying is mould is unique to Grandview, much like terroir is for wine. Is that terroir something you can describe or something you can feel? Mm -mm. You see it mostly manifest itself in maturation. In what way? It first shows itself either positively or negatively, depending on what you're trying to achieve on the outside of the cheese. So I could pull up stumps, build another factory, seek to replicate the blue cheeses that we make in that particular factory. I could, I could make it in this factory and then make it from the same milk in another factory, mature it, and I guarantee you they'd be completely different. You could swear black and blue that you had exactly the same equipment, the same milk, the same factory set up, therefore the same airflow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and there is no way in the world that you'll be able to make exactly the same cheese microbiologically because of these invisible, you know, omnipresent microbial mouldy mechanisms that first and foremost show themselves on the outside of your cheese. And I think that's one of the big things that we've always championed with the festival is the fact that this is an artisan product. This is unique to that particular place, um, that moment in time, and that's something that should be celebrated. I think it's so incredible, the attention to detail, but also allowing you know, the cheese product to do what it needs to do. It's such an incredible process. I've, I've always find it, I found it fascinating. In the last episode, we chatted to Nick Haddo from Bruni Island Cheese just over the road about the importance of aging cheese and how vital it is and how getting that aging right is critical as it adds so much to flavour. It must be a challenge to pick that optimum enjoyment window for your customers. If I sold blue cheese at what I thought was absolute perfect point of balance for the style that we were trying to achieve, I would probably, I reckon I'd sell 50% less blue because you start to really alienate the aspirational blue eater. There's, there's, there's a whole bucket of commercial decisions that need to be considered in maturing cheese and making cheese that's really unromantic. I think it's important that consumers understand that on some level, but this is where mould's really important because it pushes people's boundaries. So the event mould and, you know, the Mould Cheese Collective and whatnot gives us and everyone who's on the domestic cheese journey an insight into the reality of what we all enjoy. And I am really happy to, in fact, part of the essence of why I do what I do is to be able to communicate to people, look, I would happily make an extra 10% of blue and mature it to this stage if I knew that that 10% of blue was actually going to go to a happy home that really enjoyed it at that stage. And it, it starts this conversation with the consumer that otherwise in our wide brown land, we have limited avenues to discuss. I think it's like why I think festivals and things like that work is it gives people an opportunity to taste, and you've seen it, where people come to the festival, they get to taste a whole range of different cheeses and then decide what they like to their to their flavour profile and then purchase direct. We want that 
conversation between people and producer? It's not something we get to do very often. A lot of us attend markets and that's great, but it's a, it's, it's a channel to market. It's an avenue for sale. And some people want to engage with you and the reason you do what you do. And some people just, you know, want to buy something because they've got friends coming over for dinner and, and, and that's also fine. But mold specifically takes us as artisans directly to our cheese people. And, and that has not been a thing historically. We've been like the afterthought to a bloody wine event or something, you know? Oh, people like wine and cheese. Hey, let's just invite some cheese makers, shall we? Wine and, wine and cheese is generally gross. Um, I will quite happily say that. Uh, red wine and blue cheese is disgusting. It's, it's so gross. Ugh. But to you, dear listener, uh, we're going to explore drinks and cheese matching in future episodes. So, wow. Uh, Hold tight. Um, Nicole, thank you so much for being part of the Mold Cheese Collective. Um, I've always been a massive fan uh, of you, your cheese, the whole story that is Grandview. Thank you so much and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you finished with yes. I don't even You can use swear words, Nicole. We like to think of them as big exclamation points. Thank you so much to everyone for tuning in for the Mold Cheese Collective podcast. We're all about sharing the good word about the best cheesemakers in Australia. But of course, we'd love to hear from you as to what cheese you love, where it's from, and even better, your thoughts on this podcast. It would really mean a lot if you leave a rating or a comment or just share it with your mates. We have a heap more interviews to come, so be sure to stay tuned. But until next time, cheers. Cheers.